Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. I mean, I can't tell you the amount of guys that have said to me, Samson saved my life, uh, which is incredibly humbling. And for me, kind of like, I don't know, it's beautiful. You know, um, I've had many guys say to me that um, doing the group changed their marriage, you know, that it helped their marriage, it, it improved their relationship with their kids, their own, of course, self-understanding as well. So, yeah, all sorts of stuff like that. It it can be quite overwhelming to be on the receiving end of that. It's very humbling and and beautiful for me. Great to be back with you here, as always. Some brief housekeeping and we'll get underway. First off, this week's episode comes with a content disclaimer. On today's episode, we speak with a wonderful organisation that is helping men to work through the trauma they've experienced as a result of childhood sexual abuse. So needless to say, if you find this triggering or if it makes you uncomfortable for any reason, feel free to give this one a miss. At Humans of Purpose, we're always trying to learn more about you, our listeners, and how we can improve the podcast. This is why we run our podcast survey each year. It takes less than 10 minutes to complete, and it's what I use during the off-season as my podcast improvement guide for our next season. As of today, prizes are still up for grabs for completing the survey. Just hit the link in our show notes to participate before it closes next Friday. Beyond sponsoring the podcast, another way to support the show and enjoy some great perks if you're a keen listener is to become a Humans of Purpose member. Perks include access to every episode a few days early, ad-free, an audio note on each guest, a full transcript of each episode, as well as my top five insights from each episode and contact details for each guest, as well as a brokered introduction service. Check out the link in our show notes to learn more. We are, of course, as always, proud to be sponsored by the great folk at Neon Treehouse, who are still the best digital agency on the planet Earth and doing a great job meeting all of our marketing and social media needs for a great cause. This week, I'm thrilled to welcome Craig Hughes-Cashmore to the podcast. Craig is the CEO of Samson, which stands for Survivors and Mates Support Network. Samson's vision is a world in which male survivors of childhood sexual abuse can easily access support and find understanding and acceptance. Samson believes male survivors of childhood sexual abuse can recover, support others to thrive, and be leaders for change. Craig is just an amazing person and one of the best interviewees I've been lucky to work with on Humans of Purpose. His authenticity, vulnerability, and sharing of his lived experience and journey personally and with Samson make for spellbinding listening. There are some difficult moments to work through in the conversation, but it speaks to how important the work is that Craig and his team at Samson are doing. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Craig as much as I did. Well, I'm thrilled to be joined by Craig this morning. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Mike. It's a pleasure. I've been excited to have this conversation for some time. I I think the work that Samson does is just incredible, um, highly impactful and meaningful. We'll get to that. But of course, as we like to do in our usual style, we'd love to hear a little bit uh, from you about your journey into the space and to Samson. Well, it's been a long one, um, and I'm not quite sure where to start, but I am a survivor of child sexual abuse, and uh, I struggled with the impacts of that for many, many years and really was in a lot of denial about, about the impacts, even though um, they were pretty obvious 
um, to everybody else. Um, they weren't so much to me. So, uh, yeah, I had a range of different jobs throughout my 20s, mostly working in Melbourne in hospitality, managing restaurants and bars and cafes, and uh, then decided to move to Sydney and got into arts management and was working uh, in theatre companies, ended up general manager of theatre company and working with actors and, as, and directors and as, as, an, as an agent. And, um, yeah, at a certain point, um, started to face my history of abuse as a child and, uh, yeah, and, and all of this unfolded from that. And how do you, how was it for you reaching that point and what was that like sort of deciding that there was the right time to sort of face some of those um, past trauma? Well, I had seen, I was on my way to work one morning. I was on the train. It was a beautiful sunny day and uh, I was reading the Sydney Morning Herald front page and they were reporting on the sentencing of a, an MP, a politician who'd been um, arrested, charged and found guilty of abusing several boys. And uh, as I was reading this story, and one of the guys had actually disclosed his identity and spoken to the press and his story was my story. And in that moment, I put, it was like time stood still, everything came together and I joined all the dots and I could see the progression from that moment uh, to where I was. And uh, it was really shocking to me because, uh, yeah, I'd kind of lived it with a lot of denial and, um, and but all the pieces fell into place at that point. Yeah. And for you, it was a critical part of that, hearing somebody else or a sort of a, a peer <clears throat> share, share a similar story? Was that what sort of ignited that spark to um, into action? Yeah, 100%. Because, of course, I had had moments where I thought, wow, was that a abuse was that wrong I mean it's kind of crazy to me now because it's a crime right and it's obviously wrong um but a lot of guys that I've talked to since then actually don't always think of it as as a crime and I think the reason for that in part in no small part is that perpetrators of sexual offenses groom their victims um but not only the victims they groom the parents first so they can gain access if there are parents involved or carers or whatever the context and situation might be, they will work to ensure that not only they're safe to go ahead and do it, but also that their victim feels complicit in a way, if that makes sense. Yes, the um, the manipulation and abuse of relationships and power sort of play into this in a really terrifying but fascinating way. I'm interested in this sort of setting. What is different um, in your view about male survivorship as opposed to what might be different for other genders? Mm. Uh, Look, I think that there are more similarities between men and women in our reactions and the impacts than differences, but there are some really key differences, I think, for men. Um, You know, I have to be a bit cautious about that because, you know, I'm not a woman, but excuse me, I've certainly talked to many female um, survivors. But look, I think, uh, unfortunately, we know that uh, in the main, men uh, are the majority of perpetrators. Although there are certainly female perpetrators, and I think that's really widely underreported. But um, 
I think for a lot of guys with a same-sex perpetrator, it raises questions about for them about their sexuality. Um, confusion around that is not uncommon uh, for guys. Um, so does that mean, Craig, that if a, if a male experiences um, sexual abuse, they might have some confusion as to whether they might themselves be homosexual and then feel some sense of either confusion, shame or lack of clarity around their own identity and, and sort of nature? Yeah, well put. That's it. I mean, that's one of the things I think that's a terrible legacy that you don't, as a as a kid, you don't get to explore your, uh, you know, as a teenager, you don't get to explore your own um, sexuality in the way you choose with the person you choose in an appropriate kind of way. Um, and, I, you know, you can never sort of regain that. But, yeah, there's that. And also, too, there's a terrible myth out there that uh, I still um, come up against in conversations with people, um, some of whom you would really think would know better. But um, there's a myth that if you're a male survivor of child sexual abuse, that you're more likely to go on to abuse against children. And, you know, that is really problematic for very, well, I would think obvious reasons. One, it's not true. There's no research that backs that up. Separate to that, you know, people obviously are going to be much less likely to disclose if they feel like they're going to be judged in that way and seen as a potential threat, right? So that is really problematic. And I think probably now really the biggest hurdle to or barrier to disclosure and, and help seeking by male survivors. Yes, it's really um, fascinating. That was actually going to be my next question is what is with that idea that somebody, is this the idea of repeating a cycle of, um, you know, uh, sexual violence because one has experienced it? Is, I mean, this seems to be repeated in a lot of media narratives or things that you see in popular culture or maybe it comes out of um, different um, pop culture references and whatnot, but it does seem to be a very pervasive belief amongst people that I've spoken to in the community that if a male is the uh, victim of um, child sexual abuse, then we should fear them um, because they are going to be likely to do the same thing um, to other children or their own children, which which is just seems to be a huge overreach and a, a really terrifying assumption, not just for the, the people who bear the burden of that, but for our society overall. It's the worst kind of generalisation, isn't it, really? <laughs> it's kind of crazy because yeah. for me, like I know and I know that, you know, 10 years of working with other guys in my situation, you know, you probably couldn't find a more trustworthy person to actually leave your kids with because we've experienced it, we know it, and it was painful and we would never want any child to go through that again, let alone parent or anybody else, you know, or any of their loved ones. So, yeah, it's a real anathema if that's the right word um, yes it's really quite weird interestingly that does not apply to women seemingly mm. which i find really interesting because if the same principle applied to women uh, who are in the majority you know do represent the majority of victims right then that'd be out there you know all our kids would be in danger, right? But because there's, you know, that's when you look at the gender stuff and you think, well, okay, women are seen as maternal, uh, women are seen by and large as the victims, men as the perpetrators. And I think, again, that is a myth that unfortunately doesn't assist. And when we talk about violence against women and children, we really should be talking about, in my mind, 
violence against people. Yeah. And, you know, like it just to make these differences just separates us out and it shuts down male survivors from speaking up. Yes, and it's sort of a fascinating psychology for me behind all of this because I would have thought um, people who have a heart, if they've experienced terrible things, the last thing they would want to do, if they're sound of mind, is to reflect those or project those experiences onto other vulnerable people. Um, I myself, for example, have been the victim of bullying and harassment before. Mm. Um, I am so terrified of ever doing that to anyone else because of the pain that it caused me. Um, And I would have thought that most people think that way and try and shape their behaviour to correspond to that um, lived experience. Yeah, they're dangerous assumptions, aren't they? And, you know, Mm. just hearing that reminds me of, I mean, you know, I've started this whole organisation because of what happened to me. Um, You know, I invested over $100,000 of the compensation that I received after two criminal trials into this um, organisation to fill a massive gap. Uh, that we could see existed um, for specialist support for male survivors of child sexual abuse. And all the guys who have gone through our eight-week group program, for instance, and there's over 650 of them so far, you know, they're just so grateful to Samson and that we exist, the services we provide, their uh, mateship and the the friends that they've made and, and met through Samson, they really want to give back. Um, because they're because of that gratitude and because they care so much about the issue and they don't want to see this happen to to other children. Simple as that. And um, I mean, let's talk a bit about Samson. The first thing I want yeah. to ask you before you get into um, the the mission and what the organisation does is it unique? I mean, are there, are there other organisations before you started Samson that are sort of advocating for the rights of male survivors in these situations and helping them? Uh there are, but not so much here in Australia. So, uh, yeah, um, there's no there's no one else really. Uh, there is a fantastic organisation up in Queensland called Living Well, and they probably started not long before we did and uh, did fantastic work, uh, but confined to New South Wales, sorry, confined to Queensland. <clears throat> and... Um, uh, unfortunately, since the Royal Commission, they're unable to offer quite the same breadth of um, services up there. Uh, so in, in short, no, we are really unique in Australia. We're the, actually we're the only dedicated um, organisation, um, specialist organisation helping male survivors and our families and supporters. There are um, Others overseas, New Zealand beat us to it. They've, you know, got quite a network going over there and doing great stuff. Uh, the US and UK similarly. So we are kind of behind the eight ball. And unfortunately, our funding does largely restrict us to New South Wales, even though, you know, as we're becoming better known, we're getting calls from all around Australia saying we need Samson in Tassie, we need you in WA. And so, you know, there's an ongoing, for me as one of the co-founders, there's an ongoing you know, there's pressure and tension and and an obligation um, that I feel that um, I know how much um, this is needed nationwide. Oh, absolutely. And it's probably a good time to, first of all, explain SAMHSA, what it means, the acronym, and then maybe speak to the, the mission, purpose and general activity of the organisation. Okay, cool. Thanks. Uh, so Samson, which, of course, in the beginning, everyone thought when we were calling that we were calling from Samsung, 
um, <laughs> hit them up for you know their phone bill or whatever. But um, <laughs> Samson so- stands for Survivors and Mates Support Network. Uh, so what we wanted to create was exactly that, uh, a support network um, of guys because often guys feel really isolated and they haven't told anyone and they're holding the secret and they don't know how to talk about it, right? They don't have the language and it's very hard to put together because it doesn't make sense. And when you're a child um, and you've, you've got a developing brain, it's hard to make sense of. And as an adult, if you don't have support to unpack that stuff, very, very hard to do on your own. But our purpose is to give, is to build a support network essentially that builds voice and agency to male survivors and our supporters because families suffer a lot from this stuff as well. Um, but our vision basically is, is a world in which male survivors of childhood sexual abuse can easily access support and find understanding and acceptance. Fantastic. And what sort of programs do you run and what is the sort of the general activity? Okay, so, yeah, we started by running eight-week groups <clears throat> that are professionally facilitated by usually a social worker uh, and a psychologist. Uh, the groups um, have a maximum of 12 guys. They're really quite structured. We've got readings each week. Uh, each week there's guidelines Um uh, for the group, essentially, we call that model professionally facilitated peer support. So it's really peer-led. Our whole, whole organisation has been, and we've really grown organically according to need as well. So we've run 83 of those eight-week groups um, since the end of 2011. Fantastic. And what sort of um, results have you seen from that? What's sort of the impact been both on individual and sort of community level? Uh, Look, it's incredible, to be honest. I mean, I can't tell you the amount of guys that have said to me, Samson saved my life, uh, which is incredibly humbling. And for me, kind of like, I don't know, it's beautiful. You know, um, I've had many guys say to me that um, doing the group changed their marriage, you know, that it helped their marriage. It it improved their relationship with their kids, their own, of course, self-understanding as well. So, yeah, all sorts of stuff like that. It, it can be quite overwhelming to be on the receiving end of that. It's very humbling and, and beautiful for me. Um, but, uh, yeah, the results are huge. In just eight weeks, it's incredible how much people can get out of it. And I think one of the key things really is just, and it's very confronting for guys, it was for me too, sitting in a room full of other men who know what you're talking about and who get it. And the power of that is transformative without a doubt so there's the eight-week group program which i guess is our flagship program but um in addition to that and because the guys were asking for it they really wanted to try and you know stay connected so we uh sometime after that we started up our monthly meetings for guys who have completed an eight-week group Um, and we've got four of those each month Uh, we also run a day-long workshop for uh, supporters, our supporters and survivors. They're incredibly powerful, bringing both groups together and talking through the common impacts um, and sort of unpacking, you know, the relationship difficulties that can result um, and, you know, how to move forward as well and how to, how to have these really difficult conversations. That's one thing that people obviously really struggle to have. And so um, 
uh, that really helps people to connect. Um, and Craig, just tell me, you know, yeah. as, as a male, I imagine it would be incredibly hard as, as in, with the Australian persona also added to sit with a room of men who maybe you don't know already and then completely bear all, be vulnerable, step into a really um, risky personal space. How, how does that play out? And is that quite magical to watch or is it a slow process? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that because seriously, it's magic. I, I, It's magic and it is like such a privilege to sit in that space and watch that happen because what I find is, yeah, that, you know, look, in a lot of countries, you know, it's a patriarchy and, and blokes are meant to be blokes and, you know, all this sort of crap. And I think um, watching these guys connect and go, oh, yeah, 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 I used to think like that, I did that, that happened to me. Just that validation and connection um, is hugely important, but also to being in a room full of men and feeling safe. And I think that's where the value in part um, comes from having two professional um, facilitators to create and then hold and maintain a safe space. But, you know, it's interesting. I think it's a real another myth that really men don't talk. Um, I think if you provide a space for them to do that and do it safely, you cannot shut them up, really. When oh, they're ready to go, it's great. Spot on, spot on. I, I think the myth is exacerbated um, by people's thinking and then if, if everyone believes that men don't want to talk and open up, then none of those spaces will be creative. There's, there's no incentive to actually create safe spaces for that. And what we see time and time again is when you do give men that opportunity and encourage them to share in a safe space, they thrive and they grow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they they form important connections and particularly that peer support model is such a big driver of um, personal change and growth and connection and um, you know reconnection with with, with the, the the better possibilities that exist within one's own personal life. Yes, absolutely. And you know, I think um, I'm, I'm thinking here about the huge imbalance between. Um, services for women and the lack of services for men. So we've kind of created this uh, reality, as you say, where we're just sort of throwing our arms up and men are, men are all a bit hopeless, aren't they, really? So why bother? And, mm. uh, you know, but we have also a very corrective and kind of punitive view towards men and their behaviour as well. And I think we really could do a lot more around modeling good behavior and um, support and recovery for other men you know that's the responsibility in part I guess that we've taken on at Samson but yeah it's um it breaks down a lot of barriers as well you know we have groups with um, gay men uh, straight uh, old young trans and all of that falls away none of it matters you know that's what I also am really proud of to again, sit in a space that just allows people to be people. And I've heard so many guys say, wow, this has been such an incredible experience because actually I don't have to be any particular kind of guy. I can just be the person I want to be and and realise that all that stuff has actually made it even harder for them to just speak up. And, Craig, my impression from the outside would be that um, when you looked at um, sexual abuse or violence against women and children and families, there probably wouldn't be much of a space or uh, opportunity for men who have been in the same position to sort of be part of that pre-existing conversation, funding environment or advocacy environment. 
How has it been for you um, informing Samson? Do you are you sort of included in some of those broader conversations, or a bit on the side, siloed in your own mission? Oh, look, I've sort of pushed my way in. Uh, you know, it was a pretty steep learning curve. You know, um, <clears throat> I'm new to the health space. I'm new to not for profit. Uh, working with government, um, a board, you know, all of that's new to me. Um, but it's been a fantastic learning curve. And, uh, yeah, look, you know, often I'm in, you know, on roundtables or in forums or speaking here and there and I'm the only guy, you know. And uh, so, yeah, that's not so much a challenge for me, to be honest. I, I, I sort of, you know, I've always loved women and, um, you know, I think... By and large, actually, people have been incredibly supportive and 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 continue to be. And the reality is, you know, even though we're we are a service for male survivors, we have supported maybe half a dozen women over the years who actually didn't feel comfortable going to a female-run sexual assault service because they had a female perpetrator, and they actually felt more comfortable. And I think, in some ways, that does point to the fact that. You know, we come in all different shapes and sizes. Our needs are different and survivors of childhood sexual abuse in order to heal do need some choices around how that looks. You know, it's not a, a one-size-fits-all. And so if you think about your program, and I'm sure you've done a bit of analysis and research on what other similar programs look like that are primarily focused on female um, or different gendered um, survivors, how is it different to run a male-specific uh, program of this nature? Are there specific ways that it's different or is it very similar but just catered to male sort of ways of being and bonding and communication? Um, good question. Look, I'm not sure because I've never done a, a group for women. <laughs> um, I, look, I, I really am yeah, not quite sure how to answer that. Uh, you know, our group's focused for four, four the first four weeks on childhood. So we look at context, we look at identity and how that's been impacted. We look at grooming, which is, you know, as I said earlier, vitally important for people to understand that at depth. Um, and then the second sort of part, second half, we look at um, moving forward and recovery and what that might look like, because that is, again, different for everybody. Um, so, yeah, um, not quite sure. Um, no, that's fair. That's very reasonable. I, I just thought, you know, maybe there are, I'm sure there are differences. I'm not sure what they are, but I'm sure someone knows the answer. But, um, no, that's cool. It's just one that I was interested in. Yeah. Well, you've talked about a couple of the um, the myths so far about male survivorship, particularly that um, victim um, cycling into perpetrator myth. Um, mm. You've dispelled that one. Um, you've talked a little bit about, about prevalent statistics and how common it is for men to be victims and maybe not come forward for some period or um, think that it's normalised sort of um, behaviours. And the other one that you have mentioned to me before is that that um, thing around it taking a very long time, much with sexual abuse cases actually, for men to come forward to disclose that. So I imagine... I think the statistic here you give me 25 years on average to disclose, uh, which is a very long time. Um, whereas, you know, that, that makes me think that you must be dealing with um, slightly older uh, men or men who have taken a lot more time to be ready to talk about some of these things. Um, just love you to speak, give me a bit more context around that and why that might be and sort of what that results in. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. Um, it's true. The Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse, which wound up and and, um, and released its final report five years ago, 
this December, uh, found through their research, and they did do a lot of research, um, that men on average take 25 years to report or, you know, seek help, which is a terrible statistic because that means that, you know, they're sitting with this um, and trying to find ways to manage the triggers, the impacts, um, the flashbacks perhaps, um, and get on with their their lives, Um, you know, not easy to do. So, yeah, we're trying to bring that age down. We're trying to ensure that this um, issue generally stays live, that it doesn't, you know, people don't sort of move on thinking, well, we had a Royal Commission and that's all sorted. Um, The reality is that child sexual abuse, you know, quite potentially is getting worse because of online activity which I find horrific and really, really disturbing. Um, but, yeah, uh, you know, I'm a textbook. To use myself as a case point, um, case in point, I'm a textbook. I took just over 25-odd years to report. In the intervening time, I suffered from terrible bouts of depression. Um, I lived with suicidality for every day for 20 years. Uh, no exaggeration. I had three suicide, serious suicide attempts that landed me on a locked ward in hospital and uh, addiction issues and all sorts. So, and, you know, relationship problems. So, you know, I can tick a lot of those boxes. Um, and uh, it really wasn't until I had that day on the train sitting there reading another survivor's story and having that huge uh, aha moment when my life really started to change. And, you know, for those around me, it made a lot of sense. I remember my mum saying, God, you know, they were so clueless as to why I was struggling so much in life. And uh, all of a sudden for them as well, it came together and and it made sense. And then we could start to kind of rebuild um, and, and, and start talking. And, um, you know, that led to, for me, seeing a specialist psychologist who knew child sexual abuse and who knew addiction. And so I was able to start working my way through it all. And at around the same time, uh, you know, I had, uh, I'd gone to the police. I just then decided to go to the police myself. And that led to um, two criminal trials. And at the same time, we started to set up Samson. So there was a lot going on for a while. <laughs> I sort of yeah. dove in the deep end and ripped that Band-Aid off. But, you know, I, I never want to set myself up as being some kind of um, super survivor or celebrity survivor because actually I, I am just another survivor. I really am uh, another one of the boys and I have my good days and I have days where I feel you know, I still can have some challenges, that's for sure. But certainly I never go down as as hard and fast as I used to and I'm much better at talking about it. Um, I certainly don't feel the guilt and shame that I felt, um, which really gets in the way of um, obviously people talking about this stuff, you know, going back to your question around the 25 years, I think it's so much of it's to do with the guilt and the shame and the feelings of complicity that somehow you were to blame. Yeah. It's fascinating. And, and I mean, I gather from what you're saying that your story is not unique and that um, probably many people who have experienced what you've experienced would suffer uh, immensely uh, in terms of their you know, mental health declining, 
um, social and environmental and you know relational issues. Uh, are you seeing? Is there a big correlation between um, survive, male survivors and mental health issues? Oh, absolutely, huge. There's actually a huge correlation between male survivors and a whole lot of stuff and survivors in general. Our jails are full of survivors. Um, our, you know, the streets, people living rough, homelessness, we're so overrepresented in that cohort as well. Talk to anyone who works in that sector. Uh, uh, addiction, rehabs, you know. Uh, just yesterday I had a call from uh, a woman working in a rehab and she said, oh, one of our clients um, mentioned your service to us and I've had a look and it looks amazing and, you know, it feels like all the guys that we're, that are in here have a history of sexual assault as children. Um, not surprised to me, but, um, you know, can you come in and, and have a chat and possibly do some work with, with our men? So, yeah, um, suicide is the other tragedy in all of this and it's not talked about enough. We are starting to talk more now about suicide in general and what we can do about it. Um, even today, the National Suicide Prevention Australia um, peak body um, sent a, a, a letter to all the MPs asking for government to start to think about the impacts and suicide in all their decision-making in various policy areas and social services, which I think is, you know, so important because, you know, a lot of our guys struggle with employment. They've had disrupted education. They're on Centrelink. And then we have, you know, successive governments who have really demonised people on Centrelink and, and branded them as untrustworthy dole bludgers and this sort of language, which just further compounds people's feelings of, you know, lack of self-worth, right, and ability. So the suicide stuff is tragic. There have been, you know, terrible... Um, you know, terrible suicides around the country. We know this. Um, they can often take the form of single car road accidents or drug overdoses. And, you know, that person may have died without telling anybody about the underlying reason. So, you know, I think when we treat uh, general depression or um, various presenting issues or comorbidities, you know, potentially we're not really doing a great job at um, asking why, you know, did something happen to you in your childhood? You know, giving people the opportunity to actually open up. But also one of the other things that we do, which I'm really proud of, uh, my team are incredible. We do great um, training for service providers and health professionals um, who are coming into contact and working with male survivors to help them understand the impacts the common impacts, uh, also how to take disclosures and how to talk to guys um, because the Royal Commission showed that there were huge gaps in professional knowledge right across the board. Um, so that's, we're um, that's really interesting. And you know, I guess one thing that's coming to my mind is that there might be many people out there who um, are not trained in this area, men or women, Um how do you be a good ally or be a good listener to somebody who um, makes a impromptu or unsolicited sort of confession to you that you you maybe weren't expecting, or even if you were expecting it um, and you're not, you don't have the training? Just say, good friend of mine um, calls me up and says, Mike, I'm devastated. You know, I'm just dealing with a lot of things. 
Mm. Um, I'd like to tell you about them and they proceed to do that. Um, how can I be a good ally and listener and provide um, the right support? What are the best things I can do to help that person? Great question. Uh, listen. Listen. And uh, try not to freak out. You know, uh, it's a really confronting subject and it should be. Um, you know, we should never kind of just, you know, treat it lightly. Um but we all have our own reactions as well, right? We all have our own history. So what I find, and this is, might be a long way around answering your question, but I think what I find, because my life is now such an open book and quite public, you know, um, and it's been easier for me because I don't have a partner, I don't have children. So uh, I haven't had to consider all of that. And, you know, I've moved into an area where this is my employment, right? It's my job. So, um, and I see it as a privilege and it's incredibly rewarding, but it can still take it out of me, you know, talking about it. Um, on various days, I don't always feel up, up to that. But, um, yeah, it, it, it's difficult to hear it and it's confronting. Um, but I think just listening and not freaking out, I think perhaps... Um, this is what we're trying to do through our work is just actually bring this conversation out into the light so that people feel more confident that they can have it and that it will be received well. Um, I think obviously the big one is just to believe what you're hearing and not to start peppering people with lots of questions about, oh, I didn't realise that it or is this because of that or is that why you think, I mean, you know, just, just being with that person and believing them is is the best start that you could make or the best response you could have really. Yeah, I love I love that response. And I think, you know, for my context, I often think about how do I talk about my previous experiences with mental health issues and depression with people who um, might not be aware or know how to deal with that. And what I'm looking for is exactly what you said, is just listening, non-judgment. Um, and, and the most important thing for me, I think, is people um, – making that active dissociation between um, the experience of the victim and uh, their responsibility for that. You know, people have this bizarre way of thinking that, oh, if something really terrible has happened to you, you probably had something to do with that. Yeah. I think the other thing is, you know, just being, you know, keeping it real and being honest, you know, like yeah. if you... You know, if you're feeling shocked, you can go, you know, wow, I'm, you know, Mark, I'm so sorry to hear that you know i'm sorry you had to go through that it's not part of my experience and it's not an area that i know well but i can hear what you're saying and i can feel you know the pain or whatever whatever feels appropriate you know what i mean but just um just to be yourself and also in that moment i think acknowledge that it is so hard it is so hard to have these initial conversations if that person has chosen you to have that conversation with, then that's a huge, that says a lot about your relationship with them. Even if perhaps you don't know them so well, they've picked you as someone that they think they can trust with this, this information. And that, I, I just think, is a huge honour for anyone. Yeah. That's so well said. Thank you, Gray. And what a fascinating discussion today. I, I know I've learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners will too. How can people connect with you and learn more about the great work that Samson's doing? Like check out our website, uh, samsn.org.au, um, or give us a call. Um, our 1-800 number is one 
472-676-676. And anyone that's out there, I just want to give them a a shout out. Anyone that's struggling, check out our website. We've got a fantastic podcast on there. It was released late last year. It's called Samson Stronger. Um, A lot of guys have sort of tuned into that. Now there's some really good resources on our website as well. Uh, We also have a team of... um, of social workers who are providing individual plan support for people who might be struggling with housing or Centrelink or various issues um, and just need someone to walk alongside them and provide some, you know, co-advocacy and support. Uh, The other thing that we're piloting, which I'm hugely excited about, is our peer support line, which is uh, called How uh, Talk to a Mate Who Can Relate. So this gives guys an opportunity to set up a meeting and talk to a peer. And these peers are all guys who have been through our eight-week group program and have done extensive training in order to take these calls. But it's really not a crisis line, but it's really just an opportunity. And for many of these guys who are calling in and booking appointments, it's just that first opportunity to actually talk to someone that you know is going to get it. Um, in addition to that, uh, I just want to close by saying I've been um, hugely um, privileged to be awarded a, a Churchill Fellowship and um, I'm about to take off on a 10-week study tour to America, England, Ireland and Spain to investigate um, best practice and support methods working with um, male survivors of child sexual abuse. So. Obviously, I'm really excited about that and uh, can't wait to see what I find and, and what I what I can bring back to Australia um, to hopefully, you know, expand our work or improve our work or, or whatever that might be, improve our advocacy. Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll have to get back to you on that in um, a few months' time. Craig, I just want to say it's been an absolute pleasure learning about what you're doing and it's inspiring. Um, I know a lot of our listeners will be touched by this and I hope they do get in touch with you about opportunities to support them in whatever way they can uh, because it's truly tremendous and underserved area and one that is really vital that we need to get on track. So thanks for being with me today. Thanks, Mike. We need more allies like you. Really appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player and why not share it with a friend or two? If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.